right, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible, could you lift your hand up and we'll have uh, some Bibles passed around to you guys. Uh, we have a lot of the scriptures up on the screen, um, but it's just, it'll be helpful for you if you kind of stay in the Isaiah 9 passage with your Bible in front of you. <clears throat> Merry Christmas to all of you, and uh, it's always a special time of the year, and it's always so good to just um, spend some concentrated time pondering uh, this incredible gift of Jesus, um, you know, stepping aside from his throne of heaven and laying aside the rights and privileges of deity, uh, clothing himself in human flesh and living and dwelling among us so that he could understand the human dilemma, so that he could sympathize with us and all of our weaknesses and so that he could live the perfect life under the law and yet die a sinner's death so that we could be purchased off of the auction block of slavery, of sin, and of death. And just pondering all of those things, and specifically that, that moment where he uh, took on a body that had been prepared for him. Uh, that's incredible. It's incredible stuff. We're going to talk about that today in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7 will be our focus. Uh, we'll go back a little bit into Isaiah 8. We'll go back a little into Isaiah 7. But, uh, you know, two women, the story is told, were having a special lunch at an elegant hotel. They were approached by a mutual friend who asked the occasion for the meal. And one lady said, hey, we're celebrating the birth of my baby boy. Well, where is he? inquired the friend. Oh, said the mother, you didn't expect that I'd bring him, did you? So often we forget to include the birthday boy in the birthday celebration, don't we? And that's so often what happens on Christmas. The goal today is to bring out Jesus and to examine him and to look at the good news of the gospel, how it comes and it deals with the dilemma of sin and death and darkness by bringing in the marvelous light and life and sight and vision to set up our, te our text today, our story today, it's good to have the historical context of what Isaiah was going through, as well as what's called the prophetic context, as Isaiah the prophet was looking forward to something that would happen uh, in a few thousand years. And so historically what is happening is it's the days of the kings. Uh, you can read about these in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. We find ourselves at about Second Kings chapter 16 or Second Chronicles chapter 11 under the reign of the Judean king Ahaz. Ahaz. Now, much like his, uh, the guy with the similar name Ahab, both these guys are dirtbags, okay? Both these guys are wicked. So we got Ahab and Ahaz, bad dudes, okay? Uh, and yet they're kings of Israel, they're kings of Judah. Uh, you'd think that they'd be like totally godly men and like super spiritual and someone that you could follow as godly leaders, right? No, not the case. Ahaz is a guy that has completely forsaken the God of his dad, uh, Josiah. He's forsaken the God of his great, 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 great grandfather, David, who you probably are all familiar with. And he's gone and he's begun to serve the gods 
of all of the countries around them, of all of the pagan people groups around them, uh, Ahaz has begun to uh, do these very wicked practices in worship, such as sexual immorality, uh, such as uh, child sacrifice, such as burning his own children in um, these giant brass bowls uh, that would be held by, I believe it was the god Shamash, uh, with these bright, I know, it's like, no, don't let me around that. Yeah, we won't, don't worry. That's what Titus is saying. Uh, you know, don't worry, I won't do that. Uh, and they would burn their children alive, and the kings would lead in that, and then the people of Israel or the people of Judah would follow in that. Just incredibly wicked times, where at the heart of it all, these, these kings and the people of Israel and Judah have gotten their eyes off of the Lord and trusting in the Lord and who he is and how he said he'd provide and what he said he would do for the people that follow after him and what he said he would do to the people who didn't follow after him. And so what often happened was that the Lord would bring other countries to come and to chasten and correct the northern tribes of Israel or the southern tribe of Judah. They would be corrected. They would have times of war. They would have times of famine. They would have times of besiegement. And so as, as Ahaz was in a wicked state, it was time for some correction by other countries. And so specifically, uh, Israel... And Syria would come down and fight against the, the lower tribe of Judah. And they would besiege and they would win. They were victorious. Ahaz didn't stand a chance. And many of Ahaz's people would be led away into captivity by the hundreds of thousands. Okay, It was a time much like the Holocaust. You know, It was a time much like you know, how we see the, the Iraqis, Christians and stuff, being tormented by ISIS and, and kind of picture those types of things happening in the land of Judah. And so in all of it, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, calls on Ahaz to come back and trust the Lord. Watch what I'll do. I'll be faithful to establish your throne. I'll be faithful. But Ahaz wouldn't have it. Instead, he went and tried to uh, get an alliance with the wicked nation of Assyria. And so he began to give money and gold and silver and treasures and possessions to the king of Assyria with hopes that they would come and back them up as allies in battle. But that didn't happen. And the Lord comes to Ahaz and says, what are you doing? Why don't you just call on me? Why don't you humble yourself? Why don't you just trust in me? I'm Yahweh. Don't you remember what I've done for your people? And finally, in Isaiah chapter 7, and I know I'm jumping the gun just a little bit. Uh, whoever's running the words back there, is that Cheryl still? Let's go down to Isaiah 7 chapter 10. Finally, and I'm just going to set it up again real quick. Finally, the Lord says, okay, but, okay, King Ahaz, ask anything. Ask for any kind of sign, and I'll perform it for you just to prove that I'm God, and I'll do it, and I'm faithful to my word, and that you can trust in me. But Ahaz, copping the attitude of a teenager, responds by saying in verse 12 of Isaiah 7, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And man, just picture that. The Lord is being so gracious. Like, you've been wicked, dude, but I'll help you out. Ask a sign, and I'll give you a sign. And he says, I will not. I will not trust the Lord. I will not test the Lord. And so Isaiah the prophet says in verse 13, And hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to test or to weary men, but you will weary my God also? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so the Lord realizes that all signs are lost on this wicked king, Ahaz. That he's going to give a sign beyond the king and to the whole nation that comes from the line of David and that shares the tribe of the line of David. And, and, and he says, I'm going to do something that you don't even care, Ahaz. But this is, I'm going to show Judah that I am for them and I will move. I'm going to have a virgin conceive and bear a son. That's an incredible sign. That's something that doesn't happen every day. Some people translate, oh, she wasn't a virgin. She was just a young gal like, like a virgin, you know. No, she was a virgin. There's nothing special about a young gal getting pregnant. It happens all the time. There's something special about a virgin conceiving and bearing a child. And so that is the sign. That's the sign. Now, Ahaz rebels, doesn't care about that sign. It means nothing to him. And he continues to worship other gods. And so the Lord brings even the, the guy he was hoping to be his, his ally, the Assyrian king, and the Syrians and the Israelis, they all come and they all fight and war against Judah and against King Ahaz. And so we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 8, verses uh, 7 through 10, very quickly. And, and we're not going to actually read it for the sake of time, but we see that, that such a strong battle comes against Ahaz and comes against Judah that it's like the rising of a flood water all the way up to the neck to where he can barely breathe, he's dysfunctional, he can't do anything, and he's in a, in a state of total despair. Chapter 8, verse 21 and 22 say that these, this Assyrian army will come and that they will pass through hard-pressed and hungry. And it will happen that when they are hungry, that they will be enraged and curse the king and their God. This is Judah cursing the king and their God. And they'll look upward and then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness and gloom and anguish. And they will be driven into darkness. And so here we have just... The low point of our story today, the low point of our story is that Judah, the people of the Lord who've turned and forsaken the Lord, are in a dark, there's words here in verse 22 that show us, troubled time, a dark time, a time of gloom, a time of doom, a time of anguish, and they will be driven deeper and deeper into darkness. But now comes the hope, the hope of Isaiah chapter nine and verses one through five. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. This is all, these are all towns and cities and regions that are north of Israel it's called the way of the sea. There was like a highway that went through there that all of the northern Syrian armies, all of the Assyrian armies, they would come through. There was just paganism. There was debauchery. There was torment. There was doom. There was gloom. The northern people just had it dark, much harder than even the southern people. And so he says that for these regions, there will be hope. In that region of Galilee and the Gentiles, verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Just picture darkness, despair, just constantly living, just for generations and generations in a region full of darkness and despair and gloom, as the previous chapter says. And then all of a sudden, light shines in and hope and radiance. Those who once dwelt in a land that was called the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. Incredible. You know, this is a prophecy that later on in Jesus' life, Matthew will write about. When after Jesus was tested in Matthew chapter 4 and he was tempted and all of that, uh, he came out scot-free, you know, he came out completely sinless uh, to show that he never would have sinned. He was tested and he comes out and it says after he'd heard that John had been put in prison, his his cousin John the Baptist, he departed to, to Galilee. And Matthew says that, that it might be fulfilled, which was written by the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. This is an incredible time in human history, in the history of Israel, in the history of Galilee, where darkness has light shine in. And there in Galilee, in the north part of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sets up his ministry headquarters in a little town called Capernaum. And light dawns and shines, and Jesus begins his public ministry that will last for about three years in this region where people finally have hope. They have hope, but it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is that light that antithesis of darkness. He's the goodness. He's the life. He's the hope. John talks about it 19 times in, in his gospel that Jesus is the light. He says that in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus would say, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Is that something that marks your life today? Life? Does life mark your life? Does light mark your life? Does practicing and living in light mark who you are? Or is it darkness? Just be real with yourself today. Maybe ask the Lord. I don't know. Lord, show me. Am I walking in light or am I walking in darkness? And Jesus says, I have come as a light into the world. And just as the region of Israel Galilee, Zebulun, Naphtali, these towns that we read about right here, just as they were in a gloomy place. Maybe you find yourself in a gloomy place today. Christmas time, I know, is one of those times, it's just, it's one of the heightened times of depression. Maybe you just find yourself in gloom. And Jesus would say to you today, come to the light. Come to me. A light has dawned. It goes on to say in verse 3, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoiced before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. And so what was once a place of darkness and oppression 
and evil and blindness. Light has dawned. The nation is multiplied there, which is always the case of the kingdom of God. Wherever there is light, there is multiplication. It's how the Lord grows his kingdom, or his kingdom. (laughs) Wherever Jesus is and wherever light is, joy is increased. So much so that people now in Galilee are rejoicing as in the end of harvest time, after their barns are full of the fruit of hard work, And a season of yielding fruit. And there's joy and there's parties. As men rejoice when they divide spoil after war. Now they are rejoicing because there's light. And verse 5 says something that every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garment rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And what they would do back in the days of this style of warfare is they would come home after their victory and they would just take the garments of warfare and with the blood and the, and the tears and all of that and they would burn it in a bonfire in the middle of the city and everybody would celebrate uh, as the battle had been won. That's exactly what has happened here in Galilee as Isaiah prophesies of the future ministry of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, which are, is our, our main text of the day, Unto us a child is born. I don't want to forget that four at the beginning because that's important because this famous Christmas passage oftentimes gets robbed of this context of darkness having light break through. And so it's in light of all of that darkness that unto us a child is born. We're going to pause right there. There's much to say, but this is incredible. This child is born. It, it, it begs and brings to mind Isaiah chapter 7, where the sign that was given to Ahaz that he didn't want. He says, the Lord will give you a sign in 714. Since you all have your Bibles open, you just flip back a couple chapters. The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so this prophecy of hope in chapter 9 is similar to the prophecy hope in chapter 7 that there will be a child that comes this child will come from a virgin as she conceives and bears this son that his name will be Emmanuel Matthew chapter 1 tells us that that is translated God with us and the Isaiah 7 prophecy says that curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good What this means is that this child will come from a virgin and he will be fully human. Curds and honey was baby food back in the day. And he will grow up eating baby food. And he will grow up uh, knowing to refuse evil and to choose good. He will grow up learning how to tie his shoes and learn his alphabet and all of that kind of stuff. He will grow up fully man and yet also be fully God. And we can go later on into the New Testament to Luke chapter 1. When the angel tells the Virgin Mary what's going to happen, Luke 1.35, it says, The angel answers and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And so this is really how this uh, immaculate conception takes place. It's It's not how the Muslims believe that uh, God had sex with Mary uh, and and they get very vulgar with it. But it's very pure in a work of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit overshadows 
Mary. And she's with child. In Luke chapter 2, later on, we see as she's pregnant, it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee and out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In just a few verses, it's declared that uh, to the shepherds, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is all in fulfillment of this Isaiah 7 prophecy of a virgin conceiving and giving birth. His name is Emmanuel. God is with us. As the angels say, in the city of David he's born. He's the Savior. He is Christ. He is Lord. This is what is called in Christian theology the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, uh, Incarnation, speaking of flesh, Jesus becoming flesh and taking on flesh and becoming a man, not losing any of his deity, still being fully God and yet also being fully man. It's an astounding doctrine. It's a wonderful doctrine to just dive into. And as J.I. Packer says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. The more you think about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, creator, alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. And Jesus says, a body you've prepared for me, that I can go and take it on myself and live in obedience, a perfect life, to fulfill the covenant of the Trinity, that I would also die a sinner's death, that my pure and spotless blood would be poured out, And serve as that sacrifice to wash away sins so that the sin of mankind could be forgiven. That's the child that would be born. But Isaiah also goes on a little bit more and elaborates and says, Unto us a son is given. Given speaks to his divine origin. This isn't just any son that's given. Nor is it anybody's son that's given. This is God's own and only son. It's his one and only son. As one of the most famous scriptures ever tells us. That God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son or his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him and rest in him and trust in him and put their faith in him wouldn't perish in that state of darkness like we've been reading about. But would have everlasting life and everlasting light. I ask you today, have you believed upon Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus so that in coming to him, you've got nothing of yourself to bring that would give you any merit before him? You lay aside your pride, your rights, 
As awesome as you think you are before his throne, you just come in humility before him and in surrender and say, Lord, you are good. Give me your goodness. Lord, you are righteous. Give me your righteousness. Lord, you have died in my place. Take my place, Lord. I rest in you today. This is at the heart of the Christian faith, is that this son has been given so that we might live. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In the giving of God, giving his son, it's just the ultimate picture of grace and of the gift Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 that this is the indescribable gift of God. The giving of his son. And it speaks to all other amounts of grace upon his people. If he didn't spare his own son, but he gave his own son up for all of us, why wouldn't he also give us everything else that we need with his son? And yet that message is not very clear in our friends' minds. There was this little silly story from a Sunday school that the children were asked who Jesus was and a little kid stood up and said, he was the one who robbed from the poor and gave to the rich. And when asked what Christians were, a little girl stood up and said, they're the ones that plant their own vegetables. And that's about the, the logic that people have about Christians these days. And we don't ever tell them. We don't tell them what's at the heart of our faith. That God gave his son he gave him as a gift. This son was born to die that I might live. This son was born to take upon him all of our sins. This son came to pay a debt that he didn't owe. It was our debt. We were spiritually bankrupt. And yet he placed into our spiritual account all of his wealth and riches and righteousness. And he took upon himself all of our rebellion and all of our sin there at the cross. 1 John 4, 10 and 14 says that this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means he's the one that has absorbed the wrath of God against our sin. And John later on says, And we have seen it and testify that the Father has sent the Son, the Savior of the world. Well, the prophecy of Isaiah goes on a little bit more. That not only is a Son going to be given, and we've kind of elaborated on what that Son was going to accomplish in his life, in bringing light and life. But he also is, says that the government will be upon his shoulders. The government will be upon this child's shoulders or the dominion of the world will be upon his shoulders this is something that we've been studying in psalm chapter 2 last week we studied that uh, the kings of the earth and the rulers have come and they've set themselves and they've plotted against the lord and against his christ and we saw that fulfilled in matthew chapter 27 when they uh, plotted and they arrested jesus and they ended up killing jesus and they thought they won but the psalmist tells us, no, 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 you didn't win. I've actually set this king on my holy hill of Zion. And I declare the decree of the Lord that he said to me, 
you are my son. This is the Lord, the Father, God the Father speaking to God the Son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the end of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And verse 10 says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. So the rulers thought they won when they crucified Jesus, but they weren't anticipating that he would rise from the dead and that he would ascend to the Father. And now he's just waiting for the right moment in human history to come back and to set his kingdom up on the throne of David. And all of the other nations and any king that rises up against him will be crushed. All of these governments will rest upon this child's shoulders. And there's a warning given to the kings to, hey, you should kiss the son, lest he be angry. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish when his wrath is kindled. Do you know that apart from Jesus, the wrath of God is kindled against you for your sin? Like the psalmist David, I would encourage you to come to the son today. The son that's been given to wash away your sin. Kiss the Son today. Humble yourself before the Son. Receive the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, lest he be angry. On the flip end, kiss the Son, and he will be pleased. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from his prison cell back in 1945 about all of this, and he says, With the cross, all the sin and distress of the world are loaded upon those shoulders. His shoulders are broad enough to bear the burden, to bring the battles to an end, and we need this Christ. There on the cross, those shoulders bore the sins of the world, every one of your sins. They're broad enough to have the governments placed upon his shoulders. Chapter 9, verse 6 goes on in Isaiah and says, His name will be called Wonderful. This speaks of his renown that is shouted and proclaimed it will be proclaimed that this child this son that the government is upon his shoulders it will be declared and renowned among all that he is wonderful this literally means he's a miracle he's something unusual you know when samson's parents when his mom who was barren uh, had a miraculous uh, just healing in her womb, and she was able to conceive and, and, uh, and end up having Samson. She talked with an angel from the Lord or a messenger from the Lord about this promise of having a child. And when she went and she told her husband, saying about this man of God who came and spoke, whose countenance was the countenance of an angel of God, he was very awesome, I didn't ask him who he was or where he was from or what his name was. Manoah cries out. The husband cries out and says, oh, that I might see this man of God. Oh, that I might see this messenger. Please, Lord, let him come back so I can offer something to him. And so the angel comes back. This messenger comes back and receives an offering. And when Manoah asks, what is your name that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? The angel of the Lord says to him, why do you ask my name 
seeing that it is wonderful. So who is this man of God who has a countenance like the shining sun, who when asked his name says, my name is wonderful? Well, Manoah says in just a little bit, he says, we should surely die because we have seen God. This is what we believe and theologians believe to be a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. This is God the Son before he ever took on flesh. He's wonderful. His name is wonderful. That means he's brilliant and he's pleasing and he's delightful. There's something wonderful about that, isn't there? There's something wonderful of him saying, my name is wonderful. Because there's a lot not wonderful going on in this world. There's a lot of awful, horrible things. Horrible things in your life. Horrible things in the news headlines. But in the midst of it all, he is wonderful. There was a man named Horace in the ancient days who was a Latin screenplay writer or a, a play writer. I guess there weren't, weren't screens in the day. He was what was called a dramatist. And he taught all of his stage writers that they should never introduce a God into their play, a lowercase g type God into their play. Unless things had gotten into such a dreadful tangle that only a God could bring about a resolution. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 9. Things in a dreadful tangle. Things in an absolute place of darkness. Galatians chapter 4 tells us that at just the right time in human history, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to fulfill the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. It was all at just the right time. This is his plan. History is his story. If we could simply do it by having more education, if education could do it, then we would be fixed. We're the most educated nation in the world, at least one of them. If social engineering could do it, we'd be fine. We've got tons of people who spend hours and hours and just genius, brilliant people trying to engineer our society so that there could be this type of peace. And yet we find ourselves constantly in turmoil. If the progress of medicine were able to do it, we'd be there, but it can't. Medicine can never heal our hearts or bear our burdens or remove our guilt. And so we come to this one, this child, this son, this wonderful one, whose government will be upon his shoulders. C.S. Lewis said the answer to it all is when you come to Jesus of Nazareth, you come to the ultimate reality to which all fairy stories point. He's the ultimate reality. He's the ultimate hero of any fairy story. I guess Hobbit 3 or something's coming out. I haven't seen Hobbit 2, so, uh, you know, something awesome's going to happen. But you know the kind of gist of the Lord of the Rings stuff and the Hobbit stuff. Everything's really bad and there's big ugly things, you know, orcs and organs and bloody th you know, I don't know, orcs and... Uh, not a fantasy guy, I'm sorry, not really, especially since I married her, we're not into that fantasy stuff. But anyways, it's dark and there's, ah, you know, and it's, there's like an eye that's like the light there, I don't know. But then comes in the hero of the story, right? He comes in and just everything is white and light again and trees begin to blossom and there's hope restored. Any fairy story that you can think of, People have written that with hope in their heart. And Jesus is the one who's the fulfillment of that. 
He is the wonderful one. He's the counselor, your text says in front of you today. Perhaps it's translated, he's the wonderful counselor, which means he has an awesome plan. Isaiah would later on say that the Lord of hosts is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. And as we've been studying in Psalms chapter 1 a few weeks ago, we studied that the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked, man, it's going to fail. And from the beginning, we had a bent towards sin of listening to the counsel of the wicked one. That's what happened in the garden. Instead of listening to the Lord of hosts, we listened to the serpent. And it brought about a great and disastrous fall. He has the name Mighty God in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. Which means he's able to complete this wonderful plan. But who is this person that is a child? He's a son. And he has the name Mighty God. Who is this one? Jacob Neusner is the leading scholar in Judaism right now. He's widely regarded and respected. He wrote a book called The Incarnation of God. And he is an Orthodox Jew. He's not a Messianic Jew. He's, he's not a Christian. But even he writes that the Old Testament does speak of God coming in flesh as a human being in human history. When he was asked about the implications of that, he admits this does crack the door open for belief in Jesus as the one everybody's been waiting for. And he also says that many rabbis agree that the word of God or the Old Testament teaches that God was coming in human history as a man. So who is this that was a child that was born, a son that is given, who is a wonderful counselor, mighty God. He is who Isaiah 7 says is Emmanuel, God with us. The Christmas carols help us to understand this when they say, Lo, within a manger lies him who built the starry skies. Colossians speaks of Jesus as being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And it goes on to say that it was by Jesus that all things were created that were in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. All of his followers knew him to be God. He also has the name Everlasting Father. He's a child, a son, mighty God, and an everlasting father. He's the Prince of Peace. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we were war with God. But this Prince of Peace came and proclaimed peace to us and broke down the middle wall of separation and brought we who were once far off because of our sin brought us near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 says that he himself is our peace and he came and preached peace to those who were far off. In verse 7, as we close, we'll go through verse 7 very quickly. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Here's a child who was born, a son that was given, where the government would rest upon his shoulders. He's wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and he will have a government upon his shoulders where peace will never end. 
A wicked king had a vision of this. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. And he was the one that came in with his mighty army and took away Judah captive. And with the captivity, he brought a young, about 15-year-old boy named Daniel. Daniel, as you know the story, was just feared the Lord. And he purposed in his heart that he would obey the Lord no matter what. And so he, because of that, had favor in the eyes of this wicked king. And one night the wicked king has a horrible dream. He's all upset about it. He tells his wise men and his counselors, hey, unless you tell me what my dream was and then tell me what it meant, I'm going to kill all of you. And so Daniel said, hey, give me a little bit of time. Let me pray about it. And he prayed about it. And the Lord showed Nebuchadnezzar what, is, what this dream was. See if you can follow it with me, okay? We've got a picture here to kind of help, okay? So here's Daniel. He's talking to the king, and he says, here's what you dreamt. Uh, you saw an image or a statue, and at the top of this image, it had a head of gold, and then it had chest and arms of silver, and a belly and thigh of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet that were partly mixed of iron and partly mixed of clay. Have you guys read this story before? Come on, read your Old Testament too, people. Okay, um, and so he says, okay, no, no, that's good. Good job. You know my dream. Well, now tell me what it means. Okay, he says, okay, uh, these are all kingdoms. Each element in this statue is a kingdom. And you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar liked that. Yes, yes, I am. I am the head of gold. He ends up building a whole statue of gold and tells everyone to worship it. But that's the next chapter. Let's not jump ahead. He says, yes, yes, I am the head of gold. But then he says, you know what, though? Your kingdom's not going to last forever. Someone else is going to come. They're not going to be as awesome as you. They're not gold, but they're silver. And they're the Medes and the Persians. And they're going to take over this land. And they're going to rule over Judah and, and keep Judah for a little while. Rule over this, this area. And then after them will come someone a little bit less powerful and less awesome. It's going to be the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And then after them will be these iron legs, which is the Roman Empire, which was around in that vicinity when Jesus came. And then the feet are something that's prophetic for the future, even for us. That will be what's called the revived Roman Empire. And that's a whole other story for a whole other day. Now, it doesn't end there, and the dream doesn't end there. The next slide will show us that the dream also had a rock that was cut without hands. And it came down, and it smashed into this image. And it pulverized this image so that the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and the feet, partly of clay and partly of iron, it was just all completely decimated and turned into powder. And then that stone became a mountain. And Daniel chapter 2 says, In the days of all of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, a mountain, that shall never be destroyed the kingdom will never be left to other people. It will break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, and it will stand forever. It's a prophecy of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the King of all kings, the best and the eternal government that rests upon his shoulders. He's the Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to his peace or his kingdom. It will be upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. That's all prophetic. That the Messiah, that the Christ, that the King of Kings would come from the line of David. And both uh, Matthew and Luke tell us that, uh, that Jesus came from the line of David. Uh, Johnny, why don't you come on up? 
And if you're still turned there, the very last phrase of our text today, chapter 9, verse 7, says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And remember, all that we studied today, the, the, the wickedness of Israel and the darkness and the blindness and the depravity and the doom and the gloom and the trouble, a light will pierce in. A light will come in and it will bring hope. It will bring light. It will bring life. A child will come. He's that light. A son will be given. He's that hope. When you look around the world, and man, we love our country. There's so much wrong with it. It is not this kingdom that we read about. And when you look at some of the worst out there, you know, something's got to give. I mean, we can't have our movies hacked into all the time. Or we'll have, okay, that's the whole. You guys haven't been watching Fox News? Come on. The Lord's got to do something. He's going to do something. He's both done it and will do it. He has sent his son. And his son is coming back. And he will rule and reign. The zeal of the Lord will make sure that this happens. The enthusiasm of the Lord and his passion will make sure this happens. He is a zealous God. He is a jealous God. He is a passionate God. And you need to know today in this Christmas season that he is passionate about you. He's passionate about saving you, about knowing you, about you knowing him. He's passionate about rescuing you and giving you new life. He's passionate about this kingdom. He's passionate about his glory being known among the earth, among the nations, among the peoples, among the families. He is so zealous that he sent this child, his only son, to accomplish this. Knowing this now, we can sing to the Lord. Knowing this now, we can do what the Psalm 96 tells us to proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day and to declare his glory among the nations. To declare his wonders among the people. Why don't we go ahead and set our things aside and just bow our head in prayer. Today, we look for this kingdom to come. It's here today. It is already. But it's also not fully here yet. And so looking at God's faithfulness to bring this child, to bring this son, this wonderful one. We look to the day when all of the governments will be subject to him where he will rule with the rod of iron just as Titus is told that we're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. 
where you're sitting today, be honest. As you're asked, have you ever bowed in humility before the authority of Christ? Realizing that your strength cannot fix the problem. Cannot fix the human dilemma of darkness and gloom and depravity that sin has brought. So with a beloved friend this week, through one of the darkest and hardest times our family's ever been through. And it seemed to me he was he's teetering on the edge of submission to God. As he kept saying to me, you know what, I, I got right with the Lord, but I'm doing it my way. Now it's true that you don't need to stand up in a church service or lift up your hand or come down here. That's not necessarily God's way that you would be saved. But if your way is exalting yourself, resting in your actions and your pride and your own goodness, that dog won't hunt. That will not do. Those who exalt themselves before the Lord will be humbled. Won't you humble yourself before the Lord today? He will exalt you. Kiss the sun today, lest he be angry and consume you in his wrath. Come to the Lord Jesus. See his great and awesome love for you. See his purpose of redeeming you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. This is the gospel. And we would just plead with you to believe in it today. As we close in this song, thanking, thanking the Lord for what he has done and what he will do, we're moving to communion. And you can come forward at your own time if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can take the elements of communion and I would encourage you as you take the bread, remember the incarnation. Remember Jesus being and becoming flesh. God draped in flesh. And that that flesh would be beaten and whipped and bruised and pierced to absorb the wrath of God against your sin. And as you take the cup, remember that God in becoming flesh took on a circulatory system as well. He took on blood as there's life in the blood and he willingly shed it at the cross. That blood is the currency by which you are purchased off the slavery auction block of sin and death and redeemed to a new life of hope and light in Jesus Christ. Ponder those things today. Remember Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection today as you come to the table. Let's sing together. Let's proclaim his wonders.